Good morning, FBC. Good morning. So, uh, such a wonderful opportunity to be able to fellowship with you this morning. But I do have a confession to make before John Jay wrapped me out. I uh, officiated a Persian wedding last night, so I did not get to bed on time. But uh, let's jump into the scripture reading. In the book of Acts chapter 15, it reads, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Somebody say womp womp. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord, right? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Harlan. Oh my goodness. Yes. So Harlan's in town and uh, anytime he's in town, I try to figure out how we can get him up here with us. And yeah, you were at a wedding last night until one o'clock. So I said, oh, this will be fun. I get to mess with him today then. Uh, Because I was not at a wedding until one o'clock last night. So my facilities are sharp and on point. So here's what that's going to mean, though. Um, I'm going to preach for a little bit and share with you some teaching. And then I'm going to invite Harlan if he would come up with me. And the two of us are going to have a conversation about some of the things that happen in the scripture today. Harlan and I have this practice. of We've been talking on the phone now about once a week about whatever we're reading, whatever it is. He's, he's studying at Princeton right now, if you remember uh, former director at Harambe Ministries in Northwest Pasadena, also a New Orleans native, which is dear to my heart, right? And then uh, if Mark's in the building, Mark resonates with that as well. And so, yeah, you're here with us today. We're going to do a small luncheon with some folks who've uh, already RSVP'd with Harlan after to talk a little bit about what does it mean for us to be the church in Pasadena and everything that we hope that that means. Um, and thank you all for your participation in this prayer practice as well. Uh, Corey, who helps out with design and creativity with the staff, has begun working on the prayers that you left last week. And uh, I got a message from her, just sort of grateful, uh, like tears, about the things that you all are sharing. Um, and so we see you and, and understand that we're all carrying stuff, uh, both heavy and light. And to see all of us in that complexity is really gorgeous. If you have a Bible this morning, you can open it to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to get started. And I'm trying to keep it short, (laughs) so here we go. Uh, Acts 15, we've been on this track for a while now. Acts chapter 8, Acts 10, you had like the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 8 and 9, and then in Acts 10, you had the story last week of Cornelius the centurion. What's been happening in the story of Acts, if you remember from Acts 1, is God's spirit has been kind of like blowing through this early community of believers. And in Acts chapter 1, 
you get this phrase that says that these disciples are going to be witnesses to, um, martyrs even is the Greek word, to the story about Jesus the Christ. And this witness is not just local. It's going to start local in Jerusalem, but then it has this kind of, and this is what we see up here, it has this theological geography that's being worked out. It says, uh, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's home. That's like the center of the religious world. The temple is in Jerusalem. Sacrifices are offered in Jerusalem. The religious leaders are in Jerusalem. In the Gospels, where you hear the story of Jesus, all of those stories sort of funnel and filter toward Jerusalem. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea, which is like the suburbs of Jerusalem. Samaria, which is the wrong side of town from Jerusalem. And then to the ends of the earth. So everything else that's left. That's kind of this fourfold movement. And what we've seen is that we've encountered the ends of the earth several different times here with uh, the eunuch from Ethiopia and then also with Cornelius, the centurion, who happens to not be an Israelite. We've gotten used to, I've gotten used to hearing these stories from the book of Acts and sort of moving through them pretty quickly like I know what they mean. I've preached through the book of Acts before at a previous life. And I remember thinking then, uh, this is too crazy to believe, the stories that are happening in the book of Acts. And the fact that I don't feel the same amount of existential crisis at the retelling of these stories means I have missed what Christ is up to, what God's spirit is up to in this book. Now, here's the difference, though. This time I'm preaching with you all, and uh, there's something about this congregation that does not allow me to sort of skip over the surface, but forces me to go into the depths of Scripture with you. And so I've been sitting with these texts this week and for the last couple of months. And this is another one of those stories that it explodes on the religious scene. And in some ways, it should have that same kind of like kinetic energy for us this morning. So I'm going to do my best to show you what was happening. And then Harlan's going to come up. We're going to talk. Do we still feel that kind of kinetic energy happening around God's spirit in the world now? Okay, so let's get started. You've got here. uh, Well, let's go back one. Um, there we go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You should always sort of have these geographical locations in your mind as you're reading the book of Acts, partly because the beginning of the book of Acts tells us this is where the story is headed. The other thing that happens with this sort of delineation of space, and remember, this isn't just like pull out your map and whatever geography you might have learned in middle school and try to remember where, where is Jerusalem in reference to Samaria and that's, It's not exactly what the text is telling us here. Part of what's being said here is that the story of Jesus, the importance of Jesus, begins in the most intimate spaces of our lives, like right in our own bodies, in our own families, in our neighborhood. But it doesn't stay there. And each time it moves out a level, it gets more complicated and more complicated. And all of that complexity, it starts to, like exponentially overlay on top of itself. So by the time you get to something like the ends of the earth, doing theology at the ends of the earth, it feels almost impossible. For instance, I don't know if you've done this thought experiment before, but if we happened to find like intelligent life not on earth, have you thought about what that would mean for the gospel? Like what is the relationship of that to Jesus, of this other sort of sentient creation to our world? I have no idea. 
I'm not going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about it, but it definitely ties my mind in knots. That's what the ends of the earth are like in this period in time. It's this like deeply unknown space. And you're not quite sure what God's relationship is, is to it. However, these early disciples and Paul, this new convert, they have been moving out. They've only been moving out, by the way, not because they just got really excited about this new task in life, but because the spirit of God has like kicked them, pushed them, forced them, moving them in those directions. It turns out that all of this newness, it doesn't just happen on its own, but there needs to be some kind of instigation and the spirit is that instigation. Okay? So, what you have in this story is Jesus' message, and not just the message of Jesus, but the actions of Jesus. This bringing together all that has been pulled apart. You have it taking place in spaces that are unrecognizable. And so, certain individuals, which is a really backhanded way for the Bible to talk about, like those so-and-sos, um, almost a four-letter word for those certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Have you ever noticed how the new thing God is doing is often most threatened by the thing that happened just yesterday with God's people? It's like the newest convert is often the one that is the most difficult to deal with for the next conversion. And so you have this thing happen. Let's go to the next slide here. Where this, the gospel has been moving, right? It starts in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But the Judeans have gotten word that something's happening over here at the ends of the earth. And they have lost a little bit of control of that story. Because it turns out when God's spirit moves into new spaces, new things happen. And those new things don't look exactly like the old things. And so the Judeans say, hold the phone. Like, we had to go through all of these things, had to jump through all of these hoops. We've got new folks in this family, but they don't look and act exactly like we do. We should probably go and tell them that there is a surgery that they need to under... It's a, it's a big deal to be told as an adult that circumcision is part of the process. That would make it really hard to grow a church these days. If that was the thing we, like, on your Connect card, you know? If you, are you interested in membership? If so, can you ex- explain to me? Right, like, that's a... But that's what's happening in this story. The old story's kind of reaching in to the new. And you get this phrase. Let's go to the next one, Brian. It says, unless these folks are... And it's in this story, it's circumcision. Which is... A way to make bodies who do not fit conform. Okay? Circumcision was and had this very important cultural significance as a sign of the covenant in the Hebrew scriptures. But as God's family is expanding, and this was always the plan if you read the prophets, some of these traditions and markers, they also were expanding and shifting. And so whenever these first believers encounter these new believers, there is this temptation to make these new believers look and act like them. It is very, very common. We'll talk more about that. So you've got this phrase, and you've heard this phrase before. Unless you 
blank, you cannot be saved. Just sit with that for a moment. Remember when you've heard this phrase. And it has been weaponized. It is not an invitation sort of phrase. It's not a phrase of welcome. It's a phrase of if then. I talk with people all the time. So much of my job is just getting to speak with folks about where they're experiencing God in their life and what that spirit of God is driving them to. And this phrase comes up all the time in people's lives. Someone told me or someone told my mom or my dad that because X, Y, or Z happened, we were no longer welcome in this religious institution. Or unless I change A, B, and C, there's not a space for me in this space, in this place. It is religion weaponized for conformity. And Paul and Barnabas see the threat that it poses. It isn't just about the old rituals. It's about flattening out everybody's stories to fit this one. So you have this phrase show up, and they got to figure out what to do. But before you get this happening, I love that like, the text is really clear on what it looks like for the old and the new to meet. It says, and Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. This is like a throwdown fight situation happening. Has anyone been in a church meeting that's like this? This happens a lot of times. <laughs> I like that you smiled, Bunny, when you raised your hand. It means it's been a couple of minutes since that happened. Because if it was yesterday and this happened, it's more like, yeah, that, was, that happened. I, um, you get this clash. And Paul and Barnabas, they decide we should probably go back home to where this thing got started and have a conversation with the elders, with those who have some authority over this new movement of God's spirit to speak into and to discern with God what's happening. And so it says that they are sent on their way by the church and they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. So they go back toward Jerusalem, but to get to Jerusalem, both physically and sort of in that theological landscape, they have to move through everywhere where God's spirit has already been. Have you sat with people who've just experienced the new thing of God and asked them to tell you that story? There's a lift that happens. I sat with a friend of mine from our church who had been through a really heavy season for months and months, and this summer has been this moment of like God just present in really palpable ways. And I left that meeting like full of joy because we in some meaningful way belong to each other. And as she shares what's happening, it becomes mine also to take up. It's beautiful. So that's what happens. They kind of walk their way back to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they tell the story of everything that's happened between Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. How God's spirit has been active. But there's still stuff to figure out. It says, they came to Jerusalem, they are welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and said, it's necessary for them, these new folks, the ends of the earth, to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. This isn't the strangest thing for them to request or to demand. But these folks haven't been to the ends of the earth to see what God is up to the ends of the earth. So they repeat the same phrase, and then they 
they get into it, but not in the same way they got into it in Antioch. Uh, I drew it as a thumb war because thumb wars are inherently less violent than actual punching wars. But there is this sense of debate and struggle. It has to happen. This is the version of church meetings, Bunny, when you just have to work stuff out. But it doesn't mean that you come to blows over it. It just means that we trust one another enough to struggle together. I've said a lot since I've been here that we take like membership really serious. And the reason that we take membership seriously is because sometimes we have to do this with one another. And Danny, you've done this with me plenty of times, right? Uh, Wisdom accumulated over time and exuberant youth stepping into leadership. And like you got to work stuff out sometimes. But it's in a space of trust. And there is a sense of trust happening in Jerusalem. And so they begin to have this conversation together about what's happening. Peter in this conversation says, like, you remember that thing that happened with the vision on the roof and the centurion and that God said that I could take and eat all of this stuff, even though some of it was clean and some of it was unclean. And then I remember I told you that God shows no preference or distinction between us and them. Peter's inviting them to believe that story again. And so then James stands up to speak. And this is James, the brother of Jesus. I imagine when the brother of Jesus has something to say that people listen. And so they listen. And he gives this sort of, my brothers, listen to me. Does that sound like anything, by the way? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel. That's the Shema. This is in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. James stands up and speaks with the same voice from the tradition. Sounds like Moses. Brothers, listen to me. And invites them into this deep truth. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the prophets. Then 19, therefore, I have reached the decision (laughs) that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. This is like the one wise elder in the church meeting that at some point after everything's been said, stands up and invites consensus. Invites a turning down of the heat and a turning up of the kindness and generosity. James invites them into that space. Says, like, listen, There's a lot of laws, there's a lot of rituals, there's a lot of practices that we find deeply meaningful and that draw us to God. But as God reaches out to people we didn't even know would ever belong, these things may not hold the same import for them. So he says, uh, we should write to them to just abstain from things polluted from idols and fornication and whatever's been strangled and from blood. For in every city in generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him. For he has been read aloud in every Sabbath in the synagogues. What James is doing is taking the tradition and just like prying it open. He's rereading the middle part of Leviticus to them and giving to them the same rules that were always in place for those who were outside the nation of Israel. What we would have called sojourners or immigrants or undocumented, or aliens in their midst, whatever language you want to use. Those folks had always been part of Israel. And James says, like, here are the things that have always been part of the deal when they are in our family. So that's going to be enough. So they send the letter and says, that's it. There's this thing that happens in this agreement. There is joy when the letter is sent 
The letter is announced with some kind of, we have come to a unanimous decision. And the letter says, it seemed good to the spirit and to us, which is a great phrase. This sense of confidence that there is something aligned between the deep inner motivation of our hearts and the heart of God. It's what we want. Not that our way is the way, but that our way is God's way, that God's way is ours, that there is this kind of coming together. And so there is this true meeting that happens, or at least the beginning of a meeting that happens. This is the picture that every time I look at it, whenever I was sketching it, I asked myself, do I really get what's happening here? Do I understand how hard this is, how complex this is? That these ends of the earth moments are happening with the particular God of Israel. And that this God, who is my God, is now also your God. And in some way, this God is relating to you and somehow drawing us together. If you remember, last week we talked, we showed you this triangle of the way that God is in relationship both to humanity and also to the created order. And then we show this other triangle that says that God is in relationship with Israel and also the other nations of the world. And each of those have their own distinct relationship with the divine. The other thing I want to show you today is this other image. It's like just, it is deeply ingrained in my own theology and I'm, I want to give it to you all of the time. And it is the image of what I understand sin to be. Sin as I've come to understand it from reading and reading in scripture and prayer and listening is uh, that which separates or alienates or fractures primal belonging as God has created us for. It looks like this. There is the you over here. And then often the way that we think about sin is it's that which separates us from, from God, Right? Like sin is the thing in our life that we do or we don't do or that our parents did or our grandparents or that just the whole system we live in does that creates this distance between us and the divine. And a lot of times church, as we understand it, is this space where we try to bridge that distance. We do it through prayer practices. We do it through songs and baptisms because it feels like painful to be so far from God, from this source. And so, so much of religion, of Christianity, has been aimed at healing that fracture between God and humanity. That's how I came to understand the undoing of sin. And that distance from God, the wages of that distance, is a kind of dying. Because if God is life and light and the source of life, then to be fractured from that is to move into a death pattern. This sound familiar? However... The image of sin is much bigger than that in the scriptures. And the work of Jesus to undo sin is much bigger than simply this in the scriptures. So this is the rest of that definition. Uh, It is a fracturing of belonging, but not just our connection to God that is lost. Remember in the garden when the first humans, Adam and Eve, they, they, they take and they eat and God's looking for them and says like, where are you? Right there is this distance that happens between God and humanity, and even at some point they leave the garden, right, physically separated, 
That's not the only divorce that happens in the story. There are these other spaces. So it's also God and creation. You might see that as like this blue dot over here. We become alienated from the earth, from the dirt, from the ground, from the animals, from the trees, from the oceans and the rivers. If you think that that's not happening, you're, just not, you're not looking. Right? There's all of this fracturing that's happening in the created order. And Jesus' work to heal all that has been broken also has something to do with that. So when Paul talks in Romans about creation groans in expectation for the redemption of the children of God, it is because creation finds itself isolated and alienated from its own true belonging, right? So that's two. Isolated from God, from creation, from the self. This inner sense of peace is ruptured. No longer do we recognize our own interiors. We don't see ourselves or who we really are. And then also... There is a rupturing that happens between, between the two humans. Well, God, this, the woman made me do it. And then the next story, the brothers can't hold it together and one kills the other. And then fighting and fighting, humanity fractures out. So here's the thing. Now I'm going to invite Harlan up after this question. What we see in Acts 15 and what we see happening all through the book of Acts is that God is drawing all people back together. That Christ becomes the new sinner. And in that new sinner, we find all things that were separated are being healed. It says in John 1 that Christ was there at the beginning of creation, co-creating with God. There are these little folk tales that are told in different parts of the tradition that even in Christ's healing miracles, there are times when Christ heals parts of creation and not just the human realm. Acts is asking us to see that to be made whole with God is to be made whole with one another. And this is where things get really, really difficult. Because what's being gestured at in Acts 15 is something we've still not figured out how to live into. In fact... There is a reason that we don't worship like in synagogues because Christianity, as we understand it, was in the beginning this movement out of Judaism or within Judaism. But those two stories, they become parallel tracks, right? So you have the Jerusalem church and then you've got these Gentile believers. All of the rest of the New Testament is trying to work out how those two stories stay together and they don't stay together. They diverge and have been diverging. It's a lot easier to put salvation on parallel tracks and not let those two tracks meet. So, Willie Jennings, who I've been... Don't read Willie Jennings unless you want your life undone. He was a professor at Duke when I was there. He's now a professor at Yale um, in black church studies. And all my friends who took him, they just were wrecked for like the next three years. And I was not yet mature enough to be that wrecked in grad school. So I didn't take him for a class, but I've been reading his kind of seminal work, The Christian Imagination. And he invites us into this question of what does it mean to invite healing with one another in a world that is typified by segregation? You remember that flattening of bodies that happens and that request that they be circumcised? 
there has often been a flattening of stories of particularities over and over again across the expansion of the church. Not often a joining, an interpenetration, such that my story and Harlan's story become wed in this new story in the body of Christ. This new humanity. That's what Paul talks about. That's what the New Testament is trying to describe. The new creation that's bursting forth from the old. But Jennings says, and he's right, even though it hurts me particularly, because I want to think that I'm also right, that the church has not realized the Spirit's urging. We want to. And this is why I'm excited to be in this place as a pastor. Because we have an opportunity to continue to make this real here. There are all kinds of dividing lines in this congregation. There, how many people grew up something other than Baptists? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, there's a way that we could flatten all of you to be just like Baptists have been for the last 200 years. But there's an invitation to be part of this place and to make it more. How many folks in here grew up in a faith that was not Christianity even? There is, There are these stories that you've, for sure you, Ted, have brought things from your story and tradition that I've asked you not to flatten, but to texture with your place here. We have an opportunity. It turns out we don't all look the same. We don't all read the same translation of the Bible. We don't even read the Bible in the same language all of the time. Part of what I feel my job as a pastor is, is to find that dial that is the Spirit's movement in this place, right? The goodness that is already inherent and present and just crank it up. Just slide that dial up and continue to show it to you. Look who you already are. It's in 2 Corinthians that Paul says, like, listen, in Christ, God is reconciling all things. So, be reconciled. It's an imperative command. Be reconciled. But we're not all the time, Harlan, are we? You've done work in spaces calling the churches into a deeper understanding of what it means to be together. Uh, so I'm going to ask Harlan to come up. And there's just one question that we have been tossing around. Uh, and how long do we have? Uh, someone's going to have to wave us down because it's Harlan and I. Two minutes. No, we don't. We have plenty of time. Let's see. We don't have plenty of time. Yeah, we do. We have like 10 or 15 minutes. That's plenty of time for us, Harlan, right? Right, right. Uh, so right. here's the question I came across that I sent Harlan. I said, I want you to come up and talk with me in the congregation about this, about where you've seen uh, this story that Acts 15 is inviting us into, either alive or dead, in possibility, kind of under the ground, or ground that we still need to till. But here's the question that Willie Jennings asks. The single greatest challenge for disciples of Jesus is to imagine and then enact actual life together. Let me just pause for a second. There is a sense that our togetherness on Sunday mornings from 1030 to 12 is life together, but it is just a piece of life together. Because all of the differences, the distinctives, the particularities that make each of us us, we can like hide or bury. or We don't have to evidence that in this space. But if you go spend time on each other's like porches, and I've been on some of our porches, you have to like bring all of yourself into that. So actual life together, that's what we're talking about here. We've been unable to imagine and enact life together that flows 
inside the subtleties and intricacies of people's differences of such things as language, story, land, animals, Northwest Pasadena, and everything it means to be part of that community for the last 50 or 70 years. It has been easier to imagine either loss or resistance. Loss of difference through assimilation or its control through conquest or resistance to its loss through active segregation. Now here's the question that you and I are going to wrestle with for like 10 minutes. We're going to solve it in 10 minutes and then we're going to be done. We have to. We have to. How can peoples be joined together, truly joined together without loss, without the death of one people's way for the sake of the other? So, right, that's the question. Like, how is our meeting a moment of communion and not violence? Because for me to say to you, Harlan, or you to say to me, uh, unless you A, B, or C cannot be saved, there is an inherent kind of like, I gotcha, and I'm going to let up once you relent, once you say uncle. Um, so, the question, you want to hear it one more time? And then you're going to tell us the answer to it? I got you, I got you. How can peoples be joined together, truly joined together without loss, without the death of one people's way for the sake of the other? Okay. Um, so get us into this. Can I phone a friend? Can yes, please. You have friends here. <laughs> uh, wow. You know, it's so, it's so much to unpack in this, in this book of, uh, especially chapter f- uh, 15. But when I think about... Uh, Diversity, newness, and, and, and all of the buzzwords, uh, um, I often refer to what is our practice as a body of Christ? Because that's where you're going to sort of run into problems, right? And, and, uh-huh. and diversity, multiculturalism, all of those are kind of, uh-huh. you know, fads or what's hot now. But, but for me, diversity is who's at the dinner table. On who's, the front porch. Yeah. Yeah. I'm from the South, it's a front porch swing and, you know, extracurricular activities. Yeah. Uh, but who's at the dinner table? What do we practice? What is our format for being welcoming, being inclusive? Um, because it, when you set up sort of a metric to be able to address those things, you may be able to uh, come up with outcomes to say, well, maybe we haven't been practicing this, or maybe we haven't been intentional about seeing the other. Right. And how do we welcome them into the fold and not trying to force people to sort of conform uh-huh. to what we've been practicing? Right. Uh, I always think about kids on anybody have children. I have two little ones um, and I ran an elementary school for seven years. But any teachers in here? Shout out to all the teachers. The irony is that kids kind of have their little groups. Right. Have you ever settled a dispute between kids when a new kid comes in and want to play a game differently? <laughs> and like, well, it happens in Monopoly in our house. Like there's always house <laughs> rules sort of thing. Yeah. So interesting, you can see that at, at a micro level and how it kind of crescendo into adults. And in chapter 15 mm-hmm. in Acts, you see even Paul and Barnabas who are best buds split by this whole dilemma of what we've been practicing. And now God trying to do a new thing that we're not really... We believe it in God, right? But we're, we're not really on board with the change. Yeah. I think uh, about table manners. Did you grow up with in the South, like learning table manners? I don't know so much as learning them as a, you know, trial by fire. Right? <laughs> Jennings talks about uh, segregation happening in three distinct spaces, and one of them is cultural segregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
let me read them to you. Cultural segregation, uh, spatial segregation, and desperate segregation. Spatial segregation is like we actually draw lines in our neighborhoods. It used to be in our churches where you'd have like white folks in one level of the church and black folks in another, like spatially different. Uh, you would have different tracks of membership for certain folks and not others. Uh, but this cultural segregation happens. It, it's a line that's drawn a little fuzzier, but like table manners in the South were one of these places where you enacted your difference by how you held each fork. And to invite someone into that space was either to invite them into ridicule, like, oh, you don't know how to eat at this table because you haven't yet elevated up to our level of sophistication. Uh, and so how... Have you seen, I'll tell one story and I'm going to invite you to reflect on stories you might have encountered where the table, you mentioned table or the porch, has been a space not of joining, but of deepening rifts. So like in a church that I served years and years ago, they would do a new member thing at a staff member's house. And uh, they would invite anyone who would join the church to come over and have some food. Well, one of the folks that had come over, and this was a, a much more kind of polished congregation. Uh, guess what, y'all? We are not a much more polished congregation. We're just us. And it's beautiful. But this place was like, you know, them plus some. And uh, and they liked that plus some. And so one of the folks that had joined the church had been uh, homeless for a lot of his life and carried with him all of the cultural markers of someone who doesn't have stable housing. And I remember his presence being so disruptive to that meal because the table was not for him a place of, of meeting, right? It was a place of distinction where he was known as not included by like things that were literally said. Does that, does that resonate? Do you hear what I'm saying with this? Um, so what are some table settings either of hope or places where we are trying but we're just an approximation of God's vision? Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Uh, there is a sense that the joining that's envisioned in Acts 15 is um, spiritual only. But when you came up here, you said that there's some practicality you wanted right. to get into. Table is practical. Who I invite into my home is like really practical. Some folks in this congregation have been to my house, have ate at our table, but not everybody. And that's not by design. I haven't like chosen the people who are in or out. But that is a space of, of meeting, um, an opportunity to either take or to miss. Um, have you been a part of tables that have glimpsed that interpenetration of life in God's spirit that you can name? Previously being in, in Northwest Pasadena and being in community, uh, there's ample opportunity to be in the lives of people who come from very different backgrounds, socioeconomic status, uh, racial identity, and so on and so forth. And uh, and you work through certain problems, but the, the key to it was having a group of people who were intentional about seeing that through, uh -huh. no matter the bumps, bruises, scrapes along the way, but we had this goal in mind that we wanted to, to, to marvel in the goodness of God is to marvel in how he created us, uh -huh. right? Each individually and so on and so forth. And so it, it takes a group effort. Uh -huh. uh, and I say this like, because when you brought up church, uh, uh, one of the things I thought about, I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, not sure how much that differs from American Baptist or whatever. A lot. But I, but I do remember. I grew up Southern Baptist too, so we. I do that. remember, and and 
And some of the divisions that we've learned today, we get them from the church, uh-huh. right? But I do remember uh, you had to dress a certain way. Uh-huh. And people who wasn't, as we would say, dressed to the nines or whatever, you sat in the back. Uh-huh. And so we have this sort of practice of delineating who's not in. Uh-huh. In a similar situation that's happening in Acts right here. And, and I often give talks on racial reconciliation and stuff. And there's always someone who will say, uh, Harlan, you know, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Just like that. They say it just like that. And, uh, and my response is, well, you didn't grow up here. <laughs> Do they laugh at that because it's just so good to be reminded? I laugh internally. And so when, when I continue, it's more like, it's not that I'm saying you're racist. I'm saying you have to understand that we are a part of a practice here in this country mm-hmm. where we do it without even thinking. It's so the, subliminal in how we are able to place and put people. It's part of the practice of how we do things. So, for example, uh, you know, your wife has a girl. That's pink. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's blue. You either went to this school or that school. If that's not enough to distinguish us, you either made these grades or that grades, right? Mm-hmm. So there's been many places. I won't say where I go to school at, but as soon as I say I'm at a particular or belong with a particular group, they're like, hey. That's right. Princeton, huh? But okay. Before I say that, I'm way over here like, oh, sure wish I could hang out with those folks. Hey, I went to Princeton. Come on over here. Gotcha. Yeah. You're one of us. And so this is a part of the practice. And I think to be able to develop a metric to evaluate Mm -hmm. that whole inward searching of God, you know, created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. I want to be this vessel that serves you and your people. But I also have to understand that I have this conditioning. Mm -hmm. We all have this conditioning uh, that we constantly got to lay at the altar Mm -hmm. to be renewed. And I think it takes a lot of humility to be in that space. But that's the the mindset, that's the heart that you have to have for God to even reach Judea, Samaria, and the other nations. So. Uh, I'm going to ask you, we've got about five minutes uh, before Leslie's going to start waving at me, uh, Pastor Leslie. But um, one of the things that you, I mean, you, you've studied, read a lot, engaged with the work of MLK, of King. And he's got this phrase about the most segregated hour in America is that moment when everybody's in their churches. Again, I think we are in a space in this congregation where we have some giftedness and blessing that we are still trying to understand because this is not a church that, at least in the way that we're trying to constitute it, is segregated at its core. But we all grew up with conditions. And I've heard that same phrase of, um, I don't have a racist bone in body. I was raised in the South. My family's from Mississippi. It would be so stupid of me to say that. Um, that's just like, it'd be like you saying like, I don't have a sinful bone in my body. Like that's just not true of the human condition. Uh, we are tribal by nature. We do this to, to discern like threats and family and who's safe and who's not. And the fact that we have narratives that, that create divisions and some of those narratives have been manufactured, right? Like poor blacks and poor whites in the South manufacture distance, the creation of a race known as whiteness. It's like, man, right. But, um, this moment of confession has been difficult for, well, for our nation, I would say. Like, South Africa has gone through truth and reconciliation. Canada is going through their own process of confession right now with First Nations. Uh, I'm not asking 
for the culture to look like the kingdom of God. I'm simply asking us to strain for our congregation, for our family to look like the kingdom of God. And to do that, it feels like we're going to need to figure out how to say we're sorry. Um, Jennings is like very frustrated with the language of reconciliation that doesn't also have with it the language of truth and naming on the front end of that conversation. Uh, which is part of why I've loved talking to you week after week because like we have developed at least enough trust that I can say something accidentally stupid and you can say to me, uh, well, yes, but, or no, let me explain this to you and vice versa um, because at some level we're trying to figure out how to belong to one another. But will you talk for just a moment, you've got now two minutes if you want, about what this, as you've gone through churches in LA when you were at Harambe especially, this uh, idea that, the hour of worship is the space of our deepest alienation from one another. Um, what that, what it means to carry that reality around as a person working for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? In Ooh, 30 seconds. That's beyond, that's beyond, uh, we're gonna have to continue that into lunch, but I will say though, it is, uh, it's overwhelming to even think of how do you unpack that to say, here we are in our most vulnerable place of worship and, and trying to align ourselves with God, and that doesn't include others. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include people who are different from us, so on and so forth. I think there's an indictment in what I just said mm-hmm. uh, to come and worship God, and there's people that are standing outside of that circle mm-hmm. of worship. Uh, it's just a lot to unpack there and a lot to uh, sort of get to know ourselves more and, and, and evaluate uh, what our faith and how we put that into practice. Um, so you said outside the circle, let me give you this last word, because you're friends with Father Greg Boyle at Homeboy Industries, and he uses this image of the circle expanding. Um, can you just share your understanding of that as a way out of this time before we move into prayer? Because I feel like he has done a really good job working with people, people coming out of a different kind of tribalism, right? Out of gang life in LA and drawing the circles differently. Um, yeah. And I think one of Father Ball's strengths is just bringing into focus this practice of, you know, one of his favorite lines is, you know, may, may your circle be so large that no one's standing outside of it. And I think even with the uh, diagram that you show, that can start inwardly and begin to cascade outward as a, as a practice, as what we do. Uh, and he's been very successful at it, but it's been a... You know, 30 years into it, you see what you see at Homeboy Industry and so many other ventures of reaching people where they are and, and trying to make uh, those needs my needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, again, the intentionality that Father Ball has put into practice has really created this amazing model for us to see what that looks like. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I can't say that enough, the intentionality aspect of Acts 2 has this picture at the end of the chapter of the early church where there's no one in need. You remember this section? They share what they have. uh, And there's all of this. There's always, right, in this congregation, these various spaces of crying out. um, But the early church witnesses to a space where those cries are answered by kin. Um, This idea that we belong to one another is scary. uh, But it... It is the image that is being painted for us in the Gospels. Um, would you all mind just offering a, a thanks for Harlan being up here and struggling with me? Um, thanks, bud. Uh,
I've, I mean, I'm super grateful for Harlan and his willingness to stay in relationship with me because it turns out there's a lot I don't know. Like I'm a particular person with a story and background and uh, what I want and crave and what I love about being a pastor here is uh, to expand out to the reaches of where God is found and it can't be the limits of my own understanding uh, because peace is beyond my own understanding. So the reach of God's generosity has to also be beyond my understanding. What is being asked of us today out of Acts chapter 15 is to continually recognize that we have not yet realized the dream of God. And to assume because we are here present, we have done all the work that is necessary is to cut short so much of the work Christ has accomplished in life, death, and resurrection. It does not and cannot just simply stop with me or with you. If you have found yourself healed, if you find yourself drawn close to the heart of God, then you have to understand that that becomes the springboard for the rest of the reconciliation that God wants for you and for me. And the space that God has given us in this room at this time is to make true the reaches of reconciliation. And all God asks from us week to week is that we crave it too, to be reconciled. It will cost us a lot, including a sense of stability. But we are going to trade stability for peace. And we're going to trust God, even when things get strange, because God's kingdom is strange. And when we set the table, we want to set an extra chair and welcome whoever might come to sit. Because it turns out it might in fact be Christ. Now, uh, Pastor Leslie's gonna come up and with her band and they're gonna play for us just a little bit of, of music. And we're gonna open up some space. For you to be with wherever God's spirit is taking you in this moment. Into places of deeper understanding of what has been accomplished in the body of Christ. What is being born in the person of Christ, in you and in us, to imagine that things you just assume belong in other categories might be kin to you. So let's close our eyes. If that's a practice that is meaningful to you, let's take a couple of breaths as a way of saying thank you that God has been with us. And I'm going to invite you as we hear this music play to reckon with what is not yet healed. God, be with my brothers and sisters this morning, with me, with Harlan, as we strain for where your spirit is leading. And I confess that there are places I'm not sure I want to go, save for you shoving me out toward them. So to ask for a fresh rush of your presence is to ask for an unsettling in the deepest parts of us. But we are, after all, craving the world that you are imagining. So thank you for letting us be a part of that open up our hearts so that we might continue to walk 
with you. And I join my silence with yours in prayer.